This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood, while trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fishing Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Warden's Watch Podcast is now on Patreon, combining the Thin Green Line Podcast and the Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon to bring member-exclusive extra content both video, audio, and with product deals as well. Become a member to support our podcast and get something extra. Search Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. 
please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, Episode 76, Brad Danforth, New Zealand. And we're really, I can't even say we're going across the pond anymore. We're going across the world uh, with yeah. an interview on Brad. Uh, and Brad's certainly been in the United States. Uh, you've had a chance to meet him, haven't you, John? Yeah, we've worked together in the past. Great guy. Um, he really kind of connected the dots before I went over to New Zealand for, for a hunt several years ago. We unfortunately didn't get to connect over there, though, but that's in the game plan for the future. But mm. so cool to see the enforcement issues um, through Brad's perspective as a conservation officer over there and uh, how unique the challenges are. And then when I was over there hunting to see the extensive hunter trespass and the poaching of these trophy stags, these red stag, and how uh, thin their game wardens are over there for these massive expanses, some of those beautiful, beautiful uh, you know, open spaces I've seen on these, on these areas was, was incredible. Um, and yeah, we're going to be uh, hopefully getting him back over here to do some more good work in the future. Yeah. Fisheries officer. We, we get into that. We get into New Zealand. We talk a lot about New Zealand and the enforcement efforts he did. There's a little uh, bonus in there when we talk about New Zealand hunting too. So it's going to be a, yeah. <laughs> a dynamic uh, international uh, podcast with Brad. So really looking forward to it. Remember, uh, Give us that that star rating if you can. Interact with us uh, on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and such. It, it's it's a great thing to hear from our listeners, isn't it, John? Absolutely, guys, and we appreciate your support always. Let's keep it going. So this episode of Warden's Watch, it's really cool. You know, I say in, in our introduction, we go you know, wardens from around the country and around the world. And we really went around the world this time, all the way to New Zealand with Brad Daniford. And uh, really a pleasure to have you, Brad, uh, zooming in all the way from New Zealand to New Hampshire and to be able to do this interview. You know, when we started this podcast, we've already talked about some of the people we've known uh, together. Uh, Chris Schottmeyer uh, certainly was a, a great asset to uh, National Marine Fisheries and and Brad knew him, and so it's kind of neat to, to start making those connections when, you, when you're doing an interview so far away in New Zealand, and then you bring it home. Brad, that was, that was a good memory that you brought home, so I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, I've always sort of thought of the, uh, the natural resource law enforcement community as just one big family, and uh, I guess in the greater scheme of things, uh, in the wider law enforcement community, we're such a small part of it, that we do tend to have connections that maybe other uh, sections of the law enforcement community don't have. But, you know, there's just so many more, whatever, customs officers or, you know, police officers, whereas uh, natural resource, uh, you, do tend to, you do tend to develop some pretty close relationships with, uh, with people. 
Yes, no, no, no doubt. And uh, it sounds like you spent some time at Fletzy with them and our federal law enforcement training there in Georgia. So you've been to the States and Canada, you mentioned. So you've, you've traveled this way. Yeah, look, I, I, I was incredibly fortunate in my career. Um, and, and when I say fortunate, I probably also was a bit cheeky. Um, and I was forever pestering the bosses about uh, <laughs> being allowed to. And I, I, I a great believer is that, you know, the worst thing they could say was no. So I, I figured it was worth a shot. And I, and I guess every, I don't know, every 10th or 12th request I put in, they got sick of me doing it and figured if they approved one, they'd shut me up for a while. And uh, so so I got to work, uh, you know, pretty extensively uh, in, in Australia, um, but also in uh, Canada with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in British Columbia there and, and met a, a couple of guys there from the BC Conservation Service as well um, and uh, and also throughout the States, um, both uh, just doing ride-alongs and seeing how agencies work, but also did some uh, formal training uh, in a couple of weeks at Fletzy. I did my uh, ASPAT and instructors course in Newport News, Virginia. Uh, yeah. I, did a, I did a tactical communications uh, instructor course in uh, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty. I, I was incredibly fortunate. Incredibly yeah, fortunate. Uh, your, your resume's got to be long with all those certs. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah, and I you just met some, and, and and look, some of it was just me being a typical New Zealander, a Kiwi, uh, just rocking up and going, "G'day, I'm from New Zealand." Uh, you know, go and knock on, you know, stand at reception at some fisheries department and say, "Hey, have you got any offices around I can chat to?" and and uh, and you know Todd Vandervert is a is a mm. classic example of that. Um, was up in Washington State and uh, and got introduced to some some uh, back then they were separate agencies, fisheries and wildlife, and uh, got introduced to some or well, met some fish cops and they knew some game wardens and and uh, ended up staying with Todd and uh, you know I haven't been able to get rid of him since out of my life. So. <laughs> That's great. And that's exactly how we made that connection. Someone told me, Todd, after I did an interview with him, told me he had a friend from New Zealand that was a gay warden. So I queried him and he gave me your info. So that was great. And then when I started talking about you, uh, you know, John Norris, uh, my partner there, he was like, oh, yeah, Brad, we've talked a lot. We've we've crossed uh, communications quite a bit. Never met in person, but uh, that that would be great. And uh, John's been to New Zealand and done done a little hunting out there. And uh, I think his intent is to go back and visit you. So uh, hopefully that'll get on his his list and get done. Yeah, well that'll be cool because I you know I work quite you know quite a bit with uh, with California fishing well was fishing game fishing wildlife now. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was sort of the first first US agency I ever did any work with. I I worked with uh, some guys. Uh, on the opening of the lobster season out of San Diego, and um, mm. and uh, Ben Thompson, he and uh, he's he's still there, and uh, a few other guys, Salamato, who was a uh, he went to the feds um, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but he was with California at that stage, and and uh, we uh, yeah that was back in 1993, I think. Um, Nicole Kuziki, uh, she was uh, went and spent some time with her up and uh, out of San Francisco, and, and it was funny, you know, sort of uh, have uh, sort of heard John's name mentioned many times, and a lot of the wardens that I've met over there, and yeah, sort of uh, it's one of those weird ones where we've never actually um, physically crossed paths, but we seem to know a bit about each other and uh, know lots and lots of people, you know, uh, those connections, which is uh, which is wonderful. Yes, no, very cool. 
So New, New Zealand, and I told you before, uh, every time I think of New Zealand, I think of Lord of the Rings and, and all the scenery <laughs> that was uh, videotaped there. And that's if, you know, in my mind, if, if I didn't live in the United States, that's the next place I'd want to live because it seems like such an outdoor place. It sounds like, you know, you have, you have lots of game, lots of fish, uh, some beautiful country. And uh, it mm. just uh, can you just give us a little peek into your country? Yeah, sure. So we're, you know, we're just east of the middle of nowhere. You know, <laughs> we're a long way from anywhere. Um, we, uh, our nearest neighbour is Australia, and people often think that, you know, New Zealand and Australia are, are sort of one and the same, but uh, we are very, very different. Uh, we're, they're they're 3,000 kilometres away from us uh, to our west. So what's that, 18, 1,800 miles or something? Um we're, uh, you know, an island nation, uh, three sort of main islands and then lots of little offshore islands. Um, we're, about, we're about the same land mass size as California, roughly, mm. um, but we have an incredibly diverse uh, sort of country in terms of the, the landscape. Um, I, I always sort of describe it as being that we, we have everything that the US has except for a true desert. We don't have a, we have an alpine desert, but we don't have a true sand desert, but we have everything else, but in a very, very compact, small sort of space. So, you know, um, you can drive two hours in New Zealand and be in uh, completely different landscapes. Um, whereas in the US, you seem to drive for two hours and you're pretty much, <laughs> you, know, yes. it's a, you know, US is huge. And, yes. uh, you know, in certain parts of New Zealand, I, in fact, I think the, the furthest you can get from the ocean in New Zealand uh, is a hundred and either hundred. I think it might be hundred and sixty kilometres. So what's that? A hundred hundred miles. That's the yeah. furthest. Yeah, that's the furthest you can get from the ocean in any you know uh, from east or west coast. Wow. So we're a long, yeah, long skinny sort of uh, nation, um, and we have this uh, incredibly diverse range of of landscapes. Um, I guess it's been described as a, you know, the the sportsman's paradise or El Dorado, and um, a, a lot of a lot of hunting and fishing opportunities over here. We've got, we're we're pop- so size of California, we have a population of five million people. That's it. So, uh, and again, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of cities in the U.S. that have got five million people, and that's our that's our whole country. Right. Um, and of those, one point. You must be close to 1.5 million live in one city, which is Auckland. Um, and then the rest of the cities are that we've got sort of four or five big city, we call big cities, which have, you know, 300 to 500,000 people. And then lots and lots of towns or small cities of sort of 30 to 60,000 people. Mm. Mm. And, uh, the, and the other so thing I know about. Space. Yes. Yes, good. But the other thing I know about New Zealand, because I have a good friend that's from New Zealand too, uh, Owen, I always call him Owen the Samoan, and uh, he, <laughs> he did a haka for me the first time. Give me a second. I apologize. That's the dog swinging us now that someone's alive. Hey. Sorry. Sorry. Our dog is a very good um a very good watchdog. That's good. That's good. I, I totally understand. I've got two in my garage right now. <laughs> yeah, that's probably where I should have uh, should have put her too. Oh. She's a, she can be a little bit uh, a little bit uh, uh, a bit too good at uh, at uh, notifying us when uh, our vehicles arrived. 
Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, yeah, so my buddy Owen, uh, the first time I never heard of a haka before, and uh, <laughs> he he demonstrated it for me, and uh, he he's a big boy and he's muscular and and boy when he he puts all all his might in his haka. And uh, if no one uh, has ever experienced a haka, Google it because it's amazing. The the rugby team from New Zealand does a haka, and it, it is pretty impressive. And I've I've shared that with a lot of people since then because you know the first time when you know like what's a haka, and then uh, that when they do a proper haka, your hair stands up on the back of your neck, and you're going, oh my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a it's a traditional. So Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand, and uh, you know that um, that's the war dance basically. And mm. uh, and uh, yeah, our national rugby team is pretty famous around the world for the, at the start of the match. They basically try and scare the shit out of the opposition by uh, doing a haka and try and uh, I guess uh, psych them out right from the outset. And uh, as you say, it's a, it's a pretty impressive, uh, sight when you, uh, when they get, and boy, they get into it. They, oh, they get into it. yes, they do. Yes, they do. And Owen was no exception. Uh, <laughs> someday I got a videotape him doing a haka cause it was a, it was impressive. Cause I, 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 like I said, I didn't know what to expect when he said, you never seen a haka before. I'm like, no, nah, I have no idea what that is. So he was, he was kind enough to, uh, to show me that. And I'll tell you what, I was, uh, wow, that, that's something. So yeah, it, it's definitely a war dance. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> So that's the other thing I know about New Zealand, which always impressed me. So the mountains, the wildlife, and the haka. So uh, if anybody gets nothing out of this podcast, Google that haka. We might have to put that on an Instagram thing or something when we we put this on there uh, for you, Brad, so we can do a proper introduction to to you. (laughs) Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So 19 years with the fisheries enforcement, correct? Yeah, so I did, um, it was 19 and a half, I always sort of joke and say I never got to 20 and got my gold abalone measure or whatever they give you at 20 <laughs> years. Um, so uh, yeah, I started as a pretty reasonably young officer, I was 20, 21 or 22 I think, 22 must have been, and uh, I, and I guess had always been uh, hunting and fishing and uh, you know, my, my dad owned a hunting and fishing store shop mm. and so had been, had been brought up hunting and fishing all my life and uh you know both uh, trout fishing and and sea fishing marine fishing and uh, also uh lots of hunting particularly duck hunting duck hunting's huge here we've just had the opening of the duck hunting season here in new zealand last weekend um and uh it sort of i guess was uh also interested i guess in that enforcement side of things and and uh knew a couple of guys who were in fisheries and it seemed like a, a pretty cool sort of career and um, I guess I was pretty fortunate back then uh, perhaps the um, the uh, application and recruitment standards are obviously a lot lower than they were <laughs> today I sort of keep looking at the I keep looking when they advertise a job now and I look at the requirements and I think should I wouldn't mind doing that job but I don't think I'd be qualified <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, yeah, joined uh, fisheries, uh, and uh, we're a little bit well. Maybe we're not unusual in some ways. We have a number of agencies in New Zealand that do sort of different things, and uh, um, uh, ministry ministry of fisheries, New Zealand fisheries. Um, all we did was marine fisheries. Um, so I guess in that regard, we were we were more like you know National Marine Fisheries Service, the, mm-hmm. the federal uh, guys. Um, and, and again, in New Zealand, we don't have the state system. So we, we have a single jurisdiction in New Zealand. 
Um, we don't have that state level of government. So we have right. the New Zealand government, which is, your, you know, your, uh, and then we just have uh, local governments, which are like your city councils, uh, uh, more, the council, we don't have that. Uh, and, and, and I guess that just reflects our size. So um, in, in New Zealand, we have one uh, department for fisheries. We have one conservation department. We have one police department for the entire country. Uh, so we don't have the, the the city, the county, the 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 state, the federal level of law enforcement. Uh, we purely have a federal federal system. Mm. So um, yeah, which I mean is good in good in many ways, and and perhaps not quite so good. Enough. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just a different way of doing things. I think if you talk to most of the uh, enforcement officers, it, it create it, it solves a lot of problems around there are no jurisdictional issues about you right. know. Uh, whether you get because it's one country and um, if you're there, you're ours. Um, but um, yeah, so the young officer posted right up north uh, of New Zealand and uh, probably, you know, a lot of the same issues that um, that officers who are involved in marine enforcement in the US or Canada, you know, black market poaching of uh, high value species. Um, we, you know, regulate the commercial industry and uh, we have a pretty uh, extensive uh, commercial industry. Uh, we have the, for a for a small country, we have the fourth largest EEZ in the world. Um, so our exclusive economic zone is is massive because uh, we are an island nation and it extends 200 nautical miles from every island that New Zealand's responsible for. So mm. uh, commercial fishing is is massive here. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of uh, started uh, up in the far north, then went down to uh, Wellington, which is our capital city. And uh, it's where a lot of the major abalone poaching takes place and sort of uh, uh, always wanted to sort of get down there and uh, get into the, the, the fun stuff and did lots of both patrolling, but a lot of um, a lot of surveillance and investigative work. Um, we, because of the type of offending down there, it wasn't yeah, sort of just patrolling down the beach and, and uh, writing out tickets. It was very much um, targeting uh, high value uh, targets, offenders. Lots of mobile surveillance, lots of electronic surveillance, um, and uh, trying to trying to disrupt the the, the major poaching and transportation um, sort of uh, activities of these uh, these offenders. Um, did that for a number of years, which was great, and then and then uh, managed. Uh, they uh, it, uh, when I had joined, they had shut a lot of the smaller stations. Uh, you know, the department had gone through one of those centralisation decentralisation cycles that agencies seem to go through. Right. And uh, and uh, they decided that, or someone decided, it would be a good idea to open some of these smaller stations again. And uh, I got brought into the the head of um, the head of uh, enforcement's office, uh, a guy called Stan Carruthers, who I actually had a a coffee with on Wednesday down in Wellington and caught up with him. Um, and he said, well, Brad, uh, here you want to go back to New Plymouth, which happened to be my, my hometown. And, uh, and he said, uh, you know, we haven't had an office there for eight years. Um, you're going to have your hands full. Um, he said, but uh, let me assure you, the future of small stations rests squarely on your shoulders. Um, if, if you stuff this up, it will be the last one we open. Um, but no pressure, where you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went up there and uh, and I must have done all right because um, well, I hope I did. They they opened uh, numerous small small stations after that, uh, which was great, and mm. sort of put you know small small offices, one two two officer stations, um, and stayed there for a few years, and then um, uh, moved into a national role as a national trainer, uh, particularly around officer safety, and was able to 
to convince the department that rather than moving back to Wellington to our headquarters, I could actually stay in my uh, the small town that I that I lived in and actually do the job from there. And uh, which again, I was incredibly fortunate with the department that they supported me and allowed me to do that. So nice. yeah, a great career, absolutely amazing career. Can't believe can't believe I was paid to do what I did. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of wardens feel like that, and. Uh... So some of some of your good cases, as you did a lot of surveillance, and and I'm assuming abalone is that similar to what we have on our west coast in California? Same kind of uh, shellfish, yep. correct? Because we don't have any abalone on the yep. east coast. No, so uh, yeah, abalone. Uh, we call it over here Pawa, Pawa, which is P A U A, but it's probably pronounced or you'd pronounce it P A W A Pawa, um, it, but it's abalone. Yeah, abs abalone. Um, very, very high value species, uh, um, worth a hell of a lot of money. Mm. And of course, anything that's worth a lot of money uh, attracts a lot of attention. And uh, so that was a, a big focus. Also, uh, rock lobster. Uh, and our, our lobster is not like your main lobster. It's it's more like the, uh, well, it's the same as the West Coast um, lobster. So it doesn't have the big claws on the, on the front. But again, very high value species. So a lot of time and... and Big commercial fisheries for those um, for those species, but uh, also a really significant uh, um, black market uh, uh, industry that uh, that was you know we targeted to to sort of disrupt. And um, you know it became pretty clear. And what we saw in New Zealand a pretty significant change in the early nineties, just sort of around the time that I joined. That in the in the old days, a lot of the offending was it was done by what I would almost call likable rogues. It was it was small scale. It was a guy go out and get a few extra, and mm-hmm. you know, and go and sell them at the local pub or bar, you know. And it was really it was kind of small scale stuff, and it was you know, um, and you know that you tended to 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 employ the traditional techniques of you know a lot of just basic patrolling and and creating the deterrent effect. And but in that early nineties, where we saw the the uh, demand for some of those high value species uh, skyrocket and particularly through um, Asian, uh, ultimately Asian buyers who just seemed to have an insatiable appetite for some of those species. We, we saw quite a change in the people who became involved in the uh, exploitation of, of that, uh, of those species. And what we started to see was some quite uh, organized criminal enterprises uh, establishing. Mm. And it sort of went uh, from being your your, your likable rogue who uh, had been a hunter and fisherman all his life and just got a bit carried away and sort of took the opportunity to take a few extra to people becoming involved who who actually had absolutely no interest in fisheries uh, or all it was was to them was a, a means to an end to make a few hundred thousand or or, or sometimes more, um, and they also brought with them the same sort of techniques that they used in their other criminal enterprises, um, be it drugs, be it, you know, whatever, whatever, that, you know, um, whatever they were involved in, um, they just saw fisheries offending as being uh, just another, another income stream for them. So I guess you saw a, a far greater sophistication in the uh, types of uh, offenders that we were dealing with and the types of uh, techniques they were employing. So as a result, of course, the department itself had to get a lot smarter around how they were targeting uh, those those offenders, and uh, they sort of uh, um, brought in some 
uh, officers or recruited some officers from agencies such as the police and customs and tried to really uh, up their capability around the more uh, investigative um, uh, sort of yeah, targeting those those really high value targets. So yeah, we do a lot of mobile surveillance and and you know pick a target and say right for the next three weeks, twenty four hours a day, we're sitting on this guy and everywhere he goes, we go cameras and and some you know in their buildings and yeah and and we got some fantastic results uh, and really uh, unfortunately as as I guess I'm sure every agency struggles with as quick as you knock one off, um, there were five more ready to take their place because there was such big money involved. Mm. So that's an ongoing, ongoing problem. And, and, you know, those agencies are still doing the same stuff. You know, we were one of the few agencies in New Zealand that actually put people undercover into, uh, you know, used undercover agents and, uh, you know, very high risk strategy, but a very effective one. And we got some great results out of that. Um, but yeah, it's, um, and it, and it continues to today, um, that, uh, that the days of the good old, likable rogue poacher who's a good old boy who's really a, a, a thing of the past you've got really serious criminal activity involved or criminal enterprises involved in the uh, exportation of these species mm. did you ever get found uh, out when yeah, you were doing it was, those it was surveillance? quite nice um yeah i guess i guess anyone who uh anyone who's done a lot of particularly mobile surveillance um if they've never been burnt once, they're probably not do- either. They haven't been doing that much of it, or or they haven't been uh, trying hard enough. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, you know, I guess uh, the teams we, um, and and uh, you know, it was it was really interesting. I, it always makes me laugh when you you know you watch TV and you see uh, one or two cars, you know, uh, on a, on some show uh, doing surveillance on a target. Well, yeah, I mean, anyone who's done mobile surveillance just doesn't work like that. No. So you know, we we would generally run a six car team. And um, sitting on a target, and and the interesting thing was, you know, the target would uh, leave that leave their house and jump in the car, and you had no idea whether you, he was going down to the local shop to to grab a package of cigarettes. Or on numerous occasions, eight hours later, we found ourselves in Auckland because he was actually uh, driving to Auckland to either deliver a load or to pick up, a, you know, to meet with a. So yeah, it was really really uh interesting work and uh yeah a couple of times you got burnt but um what was interesting about the uh the offenders was that if you did get burnt um they would get really gun shy for a for a couple of months or if you know you you terminated on them and you caught them they get really 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 uh paranoid which was Mm -hmm. great and uh they'd they'd start doing active counter surveillance all day every day and but then over over a couple of months time they'd they'd get more and more relaxed and then they'd fall back into their old bad habits (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> bad habits for them and good habits for us and, and we go and knock them off again so uh yeah it was um it, it was interesting uh it was it was um yeah some of those surveillance jobs were were great and we we were incredibly we remain incredibly lucky in new zealand uh over the powers that we had and um the uh perhaps not the same level of um not oversight but yeah we didn't have to jump through it seemed a lot of the same hoops that perhaps other uh, jurisdictions seem to have to jump over around our, some of the powers we had and uh, and we're, what we were able to do around um, entries into buildings to install cameras and uh, do good stuff like that. Um, we had pretty much a free reign, which was um, which was kind of interesting and and a far interestingly a far uh, greater reign than say the police did, which always sort of amused me because here they were investigating 
murder and, and, and drugs and, and they had to get a warrant for everything and we would break into warehouses at three in the morning and install cameras and didn't need a warrant. <laughs> we could just do it as a, as a matter of right, basically. So we were pretty fortunate, pretty fortunate. Yeah. So we got some good, good cases. Good yeah, cases. It's, it's, it sounds like it. And uh, I'm sure because uh, that resource is pretty protected, it sounds like uh, they take that pretty serious in New Zealand to give you those powers. Uh, and and I, if everything's going out of the country, that's another interesting thing when you said you bring in customs because most of the customers are buying, it's leaving the country. What, that, that's a good hub to be, be connected to because everything they're probably poaching is leaving. Yeah, and, and, and interestingly, that's, that's now changed in New Zealand. And uh, it, it was another what we, we call choke point. It was another point where we had a really good opportunity to, to target and uh, try and disrupt that supply chain. And uh, we got a number of, made a number of very, very good cases where, and we couldn't take credit for it. It was customs picking it up as it was leaving the country in a refrigerated shipping container or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that was another really good, point for us to be able to target them but what has happened in New Zealand is that uh, we have seen over the last 10 or 15 years a really significant increase of my, in migration to New Zealand and, uh, and in, including uh, from countries that traditionally were the end user of a lot of those products um, and now that population in New Zealand is big enough that pretty much uh, it a lot of the illegal take is absorbed within the New Zealand communities. Mm. So now instead of having to get it out of the country, really they just have to get it to Auckland, which is still the, the main sort of uh, uh, population base. And the uh, there is a, a large enough willing population in that city to, uh, to pretty much take everything they can get. So it, it obviously it means it's, we've lost that, that one, that, that, that that additional choke point of where they had to actually get it out of the country and that was a bit more challenging for them. Yeah, because that's what I focused on. I'm like, if it's leaving the country, that's a good spot to to emphasize on it for sure. I mean, that point where they're bringing it to shore too is a, is a great spot as well. Um, and you guys had that covered through your surveillance and to patrol, I would imagine, and, the, you know. Yeah, we, we you know, what, what we worked out pretty quickly and uh, – and we still made some good cases when you were, you know, on patrol and sometimes, you, you know, you literally stumble across, you know, something. But we would spend a lot of time doing surveillance on the on the coast um, and simply gathering intel. And, and yeah, we would let people leave with hundreds of abalone, but we would then, you know, build the intel on the vehicles they were using and who they were associating with. And, and then, you know, I guess it, there were times where we would accept that, we would let them take, you know, hundreds of abalone, uh, but the intel we were able to gather and then set up a major operation and, you know, cap- capture them with tons of abalone um, uh, further down the track was seen as a, a better option. And to, um, because if you put them before the court, when you caught them with a few hundred abalone, they would get a level of penalty. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if you could spend the time and build that significant case against them, um, and, and often we were rather than targeting the, the divers uh, and, and, you know, these organized criminal groups, they would pay groups of divers to go out and they might be eight or 10 groups of divers operating on a coastline rather than picking off those, you know, individual groups. What we wanted to target was the middlemen, the, the, the people who were actually, uh, 
bringing it all in and they would be collecting uh, off eight or ten different groups and then uh, um, paying them they, uh, and then distributing them up to Auckland. That, they were the people we were after. So we would often we would often forego or sometimes forego some of the, the smaller uh, bottom end sort of operators um, and uh, try and get them to lead us to who the um, the bigger fish were, excuse the pun, uh, in the uh, in the chain and uh, target them. So yeah, no, we got um, we got we made some really big cases, and and again with the undercover operators, you know, we put a couple of really major operations that uh, were were done. We put people into those gangs. Uh, we set people up as um, buyers of uh, of illegal product. Um, we 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 they created a you know, a persona of being a, a the middleman and, you know, some of those operations, you know, on one night, I remember the, the, um, the uh, agent um, bought 9,000 lobster uh, in about a three-month period uh, of various people. And, of course, when we were able to take them, them down, we made a really serious dent in the, uh, in the activity. So, you know, it was quite a, it was quite a change. And, and very much the, I guess, the ministry decided that rather than focusing on... Uh, the small level writing tickets to sport fishermen and that sort of thing for having a couple of undersized fish. The the, the real damage to the resource was being done by those uh, high level offenders, and that that's where our uh, time and effort was far better to be um, to be spent targeting those. So, yeah, you know, there's still it still goes on. Um, you know, they still have uh, obviously they still have to maintain an, uh, a uniform presence and that good deterrent value for the sport fishery for the rec- uh, for the commercial industry doing the, the jumping on board doing the, the checks. But there is far more emphasis on what we would call intelligence led enforcement here, targeting this really serious offenders, looking at what your 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 actual true risks are to the resource. Mm. Um, and um, and and putting your efforts into uh, into targeting that. Yeah, no, definitely making the bigger difference by by doing that. So taking out the yeah, bigger I'm, kinpids, bringing down their whole structure of illegal activity when you did that. So yeah, and I guess uh, very similar to you know when you think very similar to drugs. Yeah, you, you know you either target the street level pusher who's you know selling however much uh, or you target the distributor you target the you know the, the, the person who's running the, the 20 or 30 street pushes and that's very much or the importer um you know and that's very much the uh, mindset that we took and, and i guess you know working with guys like you know todd vanderburt and as much as it pains me to say uh, todd was probably the best officer I ever worked with in my my life not that i would ever admit that to him <laughs> um he, uh, you know, he he really got me thinking. I guess as a young officer, um, when I first sort of met Todd, it was about you know going out and and uh, you know writing writing tickets. Uh, and and he, I guess, uh, kind of early on realised that yeah, you could you can go out and target the, the mum, dad, and the kids, and and uh, or you could really target the uh, the serious offenders, and actually they are the people that are doing the real damage, and that's where your, your time should be spent. And uh, you know, I, I'll never forget. Uh, I, it was uh, Todd that introduced me to the term writing chicken shit tickets, and uh, he used. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, he said you can either write chicken shit tickets, or you can actually go out and, and target people who uh, are really doing the damage. And uh, you know, you can spend your career 
you know, um, you know targeting the, the low level stuff, or you can really make a difference. And uh, yeah, I guess that's what uh, that's what uh, certainly fisheries in New Zealand uh, tried to move away from that uh, from that low level uh, offending and, and start to target the really big stuff. Yeah, no, so, that, that, that it makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, yeah, you know, the other thing I saw, you did a post not that long ago, is uh, your rangers. Now, I'm assuming that's the Department of Conservation. Um, you had a post there recently? No, it is? Well, yes, yeah, yeah, no. So, yes. again, we have quite an unusual system in New Zealand, uh, and uh, particularly around, uh, I mean, I'll give you the, the, the quick overview. So you have the, the um, well, it's now Ministry for Primary Industry, so fisheries, fisheries in New Zealand, they do your marine fisheries. You then have the Department of Conservation, and the Department of Conservation is responsible for all our national parks and all native species. So they would be, I guess, the equivalent for you of your national park service at a federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the US Fish and Wildlife Service, but only as it relates primarily to our indigenous or native species. So any smuggling of native birds, protected wildlife, uh, they would be they would be doing that. In terms of our sport fishing for freshwater, so freshwater sport fishing, but primarily trout fishing, which New Zealand is obviously pretty famous for, and we've got an incredible trout fishery here. So trout fishing and game bird hunting is administered by an organisation called Fish and Game New Zealand. And Fish and Game New Zealand, I, I, I just, it, they report to the Minister of Conservation, so which would be like your Secretary of the Interior, mm-hmm. but they are, they are not technically a government agency. Um, I said to someone it would be like Ducks Unlimited taking over the responsibility for the management of game bird hunting in New Zealand. So they are funded purely from the the sale of licences and you don't need licences for much in New Zealand. The only thing you need a licence for is to hunt game birds, so ducks and pheasants and quail, and for freshwater trout fishing. So they're the only two things you need a licence for. And Fishing Game New Zealand is gets all its funding purely from licensed sales. And uh, their agency is, uh, it's a small agency, and um, they do uh, all the, the management. Um, uh, so they're, bio, they're you know, what you would have called biologists, and they do the, uh, the enforcement. And really, the enforcement uh, in that is more around um, making sure people have got licenses and uh, can, um, you know, are, are sticking to the limits. Um, so I hold a, uh, and I've held for many years, although I work for fisheries, I held a, a warrant. We call it a warrant. You'd probably call it a commission, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, for Fish and Game New Zealand that enables me to go out and uh, enforce those uh, those fish and game, game laws as well. And even though I've left the uh, fisheries, uh, New Zealand fisheries, I still maintain that commission with, Fish and Game New Zealand, and they also happen to be one of our very good uh, clients and our uh, company that uh, I've established. Um, and so it's really good for me to, to also keep my skill, you know, my my hand in because um, as a trainer now with a you know training company, sort of uh, I'm a great believer that uh, the day that you uh, you hang up your your badge or you, the, the clock starts ticking, and uh, suddenly you know it's all right for the first few years, the stories are still pretty relevant and the experience is pretty relevant, but you know, pretty quickly um, time marches on and uh, suddenly you find yourself talking about experiences or, um, you know, situations that happened five, ten years ago and, and you start to think, gee, I'm, I'm not sure this is quite so relevant. So 
by still going out and maintaining my uh, appointment with fish and game. It allows me to get out in the field and go out and check hunters and check fishermen and uh, and uh, you know maintain those operational skills, which is uh, which is great. And, and I you know I call it operational currency. And um, you know I would say it's a there's no better uh, there's no better situation than approaching a group of uh, hunters who have all got shotguns and there's dogs running around and you're in the middle of nowhere and a couple of them have been drinking. Um, that's a pretty good way to hone your risk assessment skills and and make sure that you're still uh, you're still maintaining those uh, those, those uh, good uh, techniques to make sure we keep everything safe and uh, keep things going well. So yeah, go out and do that. And so we had the opening of the duck hunting season here in New Zealand last weekend. Big event. It's a uh, it's uh, about 45,000 hunters uh, participate, 45,000 hunters in New Zealand. So yeah, it's a pretty big deal. And uh, yeah, went out with them and uh, had a great, great day out. Everyone was happy to see us. This is not often the case. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, um, but ni- nice, to, nice to be able to put on that uniform again and just go out and, uh, you know, as I said, uh, deal, with some, uh, deal with some hunters. And a couple of our other trainers came out with us. And uh, again, they're both, very experienced law enforcement officers, but uh, um, also good for them to keep their keep their skills up. So yeah, we have a very different system in New Zealand. A lot of um, a lot of the agencies like Fish and Game New Zealand and uh, Fisheries New Zealand use uh, dep- uh, what you would call deputy officers, reserve officers, mm-hmm. so members of the public, um, which are, which is now what I'm classed as because I don't work for the government anymore. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, very a different uh, a different different style of uh, I guess enforcement much more particularly in terms of the uh, the patrol work the actual the out there the much lower key than perhaps uh, perhaps in the uh, perhaps in the US and, the, and even Canada to a degree yeah so your those officers aren't armed no so again um, if you see a New Zealand police officer walking down the street they won't be carrying a firearm okay so our police don't carry firearms on a day-to-day basis so we and again, it's a really hard thing to get people to, uh, particularly from the US and, and to and probably Canada, um, although I think New Zealand's far closer to Canada than perhaps the US, uh, both in terms of our gov- governance system. And yeah. Um, yeah, we have a very different style of, of law enforcement. We have a very different, I guess, and I'm not saying it's better and I'm not saying it's worse. We just have, there is a very different relationship in New Zealand between society and law enforcement agencies. Um, and and one of the principles in New Zealand, as it is in a number of other countries such as England, is we police or we enforce by consent. Um, we have the support of the public um, and that the public supports the agencies that are enforcing it uh, and policing it. And... Uh, yeah, it's just a very, very different. Not to say we don't have problems here in New Zealand, but when you look at um, the yeah the relationship, I guess the respect that society has uh, for enforcement agencies. Again, it's changing. It you know it's probably it is changing slowly, but it's uh, yeah very different style. When, as a as a fishery officer, uh, I carried a set of handcuffs and I arrested lots and lots of people, um, but. I never had any other sort of. I mean, I've gone to a few, few fist fights and a few. You know, uh, I called it rolling in the sand with people. I did a bit of rolling in the sand with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but New Zealand has never lost a natural resource officer. We've never had a fishery officer killed. We've never had a fishing game ranger killed. We've never had a 
Family Conservation Officer Kerry. That's um, an awesome record. Well, yeah, it's just different. It's, uh, mm-hmm. You know, as I said, I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's worse the way that we do things here because I'd never be so arrogant as to say, you know, you guys need to learn what we do. <laughs> we have, our countries have evolved quite differently. Um, and, you know, uh, for example, with firearms, it's, we don't have the right to own, have firearms in New Zealand. It is a privilege to have firearms in New Zealand. Um, although we have a very, very high firearms ownership here in, in New Zealand, uh, you know, because of the, the amount of hunting that goes on. Um, but in terms of uh, handguns, handguns are extremely tightly controlled. It's, you know, I wouldn't say it's impossible to own a handgun in New Zealand, but it is extremely, extremely hard. You can't hunt with handguns. You can only, uh, you can belong to a pistol club for competitive shooting, but that's it. You can't take a handgun out and say, hey, let's go out to a farm and, you know, go out and do some shooting. You, you can only possess them from, you know, at a pistol club and use them at a pistol club. So you just don't, in my, in my 30 years now of being involved in natural resource law enforcement, I have never come across a handgun. Um, mm. In 20 odd years as a fishery officer, I, I might have come across two or three rifles that were aboard uh, commercial fishing boats that they'd used to shoot sharks. Um, but yeah, obviously, with fish and game, everyone you approach has got a shotgun, uh, hunting right. ducks. But um, I've, I've never, um, yeah, never felt uh, threatened by anyone who's had a firearm. Uh, so just a very different. It's, it's just yeah. a very different. Uh, we, you know, tragically, we had a police. We had a police officer killed a couple of months ago in New Zealand. Uh, was shot dead by an offender. Um, that was the first off- New Zealand police officer that had been killed for twelve years. So, um, again, um, just a very, very different um, style of, of, of enforcement here in New Zealand. Mm, interesting. The other thing that kind of yeah. struck me was the color of the uniforms. The blue stands right out at most fisheries and wildlife people. They have a tendency of the greens and the browns. and the. Yeah. Uh, was, you, yeah. was your uniform blue as well? Yeah, yeah. So fisheries, we, we were – in fact, and I'm just trying to think now, you know, basically – most agencies in New Zealand, blue is seen as the enforcement sort of color, I guess. Right, like um, our police so, would be blue. Yeah, so so customs. So if you and, and actually, I, you know, when I was with fisheries, I actually sort of suggested we do we change somewhat and differentiate ourselves. I mean, in some ways, it was good because uh, the people sort of, I guess, they associated blue. You know, members of the public associated blue with government law enforcement. Right. But in New Zealand, if you look at a customs officer a fishery officer, a biosecurity officer, a corrections officer, a police officer. They all wear blue. Uh, some of them wear slightly different outers, you know, to ca- mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, blue is a very common uh, colour here. As it is, you know, I'm just thinking about we um, we train a lot of the, the Australian natural resource enforcement agencies, um, our company does. And um, even over in Australia, uh, yeah, a lot of those agencies, um, uh, yeah, blue is a blue is a, yeah, a an enforcement sort of colour. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, again, not saying it's good, not saying it's bad. And and uh, you know, sometimes it was um, uh, blue wasn't the best colour. And if, but of course, if we were out on the coast or doing something, we'd always have a camo jacket with us, or a, you know, we'd have our, our gear that we could throw over the top. Um, but yeah, no, it is a pretty common colour here in um, in New Zealand. 
Yeah, especially if you're trying to watch those duck hunters or something. <laughs> Try to blend in with yeah, a little camel to court. Fair, to be fair, fish and game doesn't really even have a formal uniform per se. That that those are what we were wearing with the vest. They were, they'll tend to wear. You know, I always I always refer to it as they they wear more branded clothing than a true uniform. Um, but um, in the case of uh, what we were. We were the, the three of us were wearing. Um, you know, our, our company uh, distributes. Where training is our biggest part, of it, but we also do some uh, some gear as well. And they were some load bearing vests that we uh, that we uh, we sell. So uh, we were wearing those. But um, yeah, no, it's a again, it's a much. I, I guess you know, if you saw a New Zealand police officer walking down the street or a fisher officer, you'd actually go, actually, they look really similar to uh, a US or a Canadian officer, except when you look at their duty belt. And then you'd see, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to be carrying a firearm. Um, uh, so uh, that's where it uh, perhaps is different. Mm. And but I like the, that, you know, the, the ranger right down the center of the, the vest, too. I thought that was kind of neat. Uh, Sorry. The, the ranger, it said ranger right down the center of the oh, vest. Okay. That I, I like yeah. that. I was like, wow, that, that really lets people know who you are and trying to try and announce it. And that definitely separated from your local law enforcement, even though you were in the same colors, you had that ranger right on the front of that uniform that looked uh, pretty dang sharp, I thought. Yeah, I sort of like that. Um, actually, a lot of the Australian agencies use those, those load-bearing vests with the uh, center patch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I really like them. Um, and, uh, you know, like for Victorian fisheries, we, we train their officers wear a virtually identical vest and right down the center of their, uh, of their vest is fisheries. Um, and uh, it, uh, yeah, re- it, it's it's really distinctive because from five or ten meters away, mm. uh, some people might struggle to be able to separate what uh, uh, some officers look because they they're wearing very similar uniform, you know, blue right. shirts, blue pants, blue shot. Until you actually can read the shoulder patch, right. what it says, you know, it's a bit hard. Whereas with that right down the center, it, or you know, it, it's certainly nice and clear. It's certainly nice and clear. Yeah. So all, all this experience and everything sets you up to what you're doing now, and I'm kind of interested in the training that you're doing uh, with uh, your company, CERT, right? Hmm. So, again, I, I, I was incredibly privileged in my career with fisheries in the number of opportunities I was uh, provided with to, to go and uh, do courses overseas and, you know, work with agencies around the place. And, and, um, and when I sort of... Uh, joined the National Training and Development Unit for Fisheries, um, sort of became sort of involved around the, particularly the, the safety and, and the tactical communications training. And, and it's something that, you know, we we really focus on in New Zealand around that, um, not even so much de-escalation training, we, we call it non-escalation techniques. So where a lot of agencies will say, oh, we need de-escalation training. Well, if your training is pitched at, de-escalation that means the situation has already escalated um if that's where your training is starting it it means you're you're accepting the situation is going to escalate in the first place and then you're going to train staff how to de-escalate a big part of the focus in new zealand is what we call non-escalation training so how can an officer engage with a member of the public so it doesn't escalate in the first place and so particularly around that 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 tactical communications uh training and, and i'm a sort of great believer that most most interactions are won or lost inside about the first 15 seconds. So what happens in the first 15 seconds tends to sort of uh, determine where that interaction is going to go, uh, you know, further down the track. So so we, in fisheries, we invested, a, you know, a, a lot of time and energy in training our officers 
around those uh, what we thought were really appropriate skills around managing interactions. So they weren't escalating in the first place. And uh, and I guess fisheries got recognised by other agencies in New Zealand uh, around what we were able to achieve in terms of a reduction in incidents that officers were dealing with um, through the training we were providing them. And we saw a pretty significant reduction in, in, in it in, you know, what we call officer safety incidents um, once we started introducing this training. And so other agencies started coming to us and, uh, and and saying, hey, look, you know, we're pretty interested in this sort of this sort of training. And and, and what sort of started to happen is that some smaller agencies started approaching me and saying, look, we're not big enough, like for some of the city council, so animal animal control officers or parking officers or um, and remembering so with us with the each city doesn't have its own police department. We we have a national police service. So so with a city council, their parking officers, they they were part of just the, the, the city council. So they didn't have had some the training opportunities that other agencies might have. So they started approaching uh, me, and and I started getting requested, "Could you come and do some training for us?" And uh, as you know, in a private capacity. And uh, I, I cleared it with our agency, and they said, "Yeah, fine, go for your life." You know, go and go and um, go. You know, they were really happy to to sort of try and help other agencies, and so I started um, going and doing this this training on the side, I guess you could call it. Uh, and I, you know, I'd take leave, or, or I'd do it in my weekends or my days off, and and I'd go and I'd start training. And um, it sort of just. It, it just kept growing and it just kept growing and it kept growing. And, and the more training I seemed to deliver, the more the more interest there was. And I guess agencies were talking to each other and saying, oh, we just had this, you know, tactical communications training, and it's, you know, da, 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 da. And, and, uh, and uh, I actually was sitting and I was still trying to do my full-time role with fisheries, you know, and travel all over New Zealand, tra- building training and that. And uh, I remember I was sitting in a, a meeting one day and uh, the, the then head of, of enforcement, um, we were talking about a project where there was going to be set up, and and uh, he turned to me and he said, "Brad, I, I'm going to get you to take the lead on this project." And and I and I was sitting there thinking, "How the hell am I? I've got all this training coming in, <laughs> private training, and I'm, I've got no leave left because I've used up all my leave." And and I sort of turned to to, to Andrew and I said, "I'm going to have to resign, Andrew." And and and, and I, I've been thinking through this in my mind, but of course, when I when I sort of said it, obviously he sort of, he sort of pulled his head back and he goes, "Well, well it's not that it's not that bad the project <laughs> I'm asking you to do." You know? And I said, "No, no, 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 it's not the project." I said, "Mate, you know, you know what I've been doing with this this you know private training." And I said, "Look, I, I've actually got myself into a bit of a a bit of a spot here that I, I'm sort of run out of leave and." And I've got all these commitments, and he goes, and 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 he says, yeah, that's fantastic. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, good on you." He said, "Do you want to? Do you want to take some leave without pay?" And so, do you want to take a period of, you know, you go go off and just take some leave? We won't pay you, but you know, you go and do some do this training. And uh, I said, "Oh, that'd be absolutely fantastic." And he said, "Well, what do you want? Do you want three months?" So I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." So, so I, I took the three months uh, leave without pay from the department, and I went and. Did this training, well, this private training. Well, that was great, but because I did all this training, all these agencies started talking to other agencies, and, <laughs> and I started getting a whole lot more training coming. <laughs> and I went back after three months, and I said, Andrew, um, yeah, uh, I've got a whole lot more. <laughs> and he goes, that's all right. Um, do you want to take another three months? And I said, uh, yeah, that would be great. So, so I went and did 
another three months. And so I had six months, uh, you know, leave from the department. And I still had a whole lot, whole lot more training coming. So I went back to Andrew. I said, look, I, you know, in fairness, I, he goes, hey, well, why don't, you, why don't you come back? But come back on a 0.5. So come back on a, so all you have, you know, uh, work instead of working a 40-hour week, uh, just work a 20-hour week. And he said, in fact, you don't have to work 20 hours every week. Um, we'll set it up that it's 0.5 over, say, a month. So there might be some weeks you work 40 hours, but there might be other weeks you don't work. As long as you can ensure that you are covering all the training that you need to do and the work I need you to do, I'm happy. And I think, you know, it's a good opportunity for us to bring another officer up into the training role and we'll, we'll put him on a 0.5 training and sort of, 0.5 field duties and that way it gives them some exposure you know he, and I was like oh wow that would be amazing that would be, anyway so I did that for about six months more work started <laughs> and I went back to I said wait look I've got to you know I'm going to have to pull the pin and he said no well do you want to go down to a 0.2 so I was effectively <laughs> I was working one effectively one day a week for fisheries still employed by them still holding still all my government conditions um it, I, look, I was so incredibly privileged how well I was looked after and that opportunity that I was given mm-hmm. to grow this, my private business, I guess, while still working for the government. And, I, I, and, and to this day, I remain just so humbled by the, uh, the support that the agency gave me. And, you know, you talk to other people from other agencies and they just shake their head and they say, man, our agency <laughs> would never let, you know, let us do that. And, and look, I, 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 I guess... I would like to think that it was recognition of the uh, effort that I'd put in over the years, and I, I certainly gave my uh, my heart and soul to the department over the years, and it was it was my life, you know. And I mm. and, and I don't I don't and and I, I wanted to. I loved the job, and and I think I think there was some. I'd like to think there was some recognition. I I, I think um, also probably the department wanted to to uh, try and uh, keep using. Uh, me as a resource, given the amount of effort and uh, and investment they'd made in me and sending me off on these training courses all over the world. So right. yeah, I was incredibly fortunate. And so in the end, it, towards the end of my career, I was, I was working a, a point two of a of a career, which was wonderful. And then um, and then ultimately the um, the department had a, a major restructure and it got uh, it got amalgamated into a much bigger department. And uh, we had started when I originally joined. We'd started in a bigger department as one sort of division of a bigger department, and then we had split out and become a, a standalone agency, the Ministry of Fisheries. And then, uh, as often happens, that whole centralisation, decentralisation thing happened, and we got uh, absorbed back into a much bigger agency again. And I, I wasn't particularly comfortable or sure that that was a great idea. I, I sort of felt that uh, probably what would happen, and and I would suggest time is proven that right is that the focus sort of went off fisheries and, and officers started getting involved in a whole lot of other stuff that uh, as part of the wider agency that probably wasn't uh, really what they should have been doing and what you know and and so I'm at that point I made the decision this is probably a really really good time for me to, to finally you know sever those ties formally and That's I right. uh, uh, retired and um yeah, uh, work full time on the uh, the private company, which CERT C E R T stands for Compliance Enforcement and Regulatory Training. So it's a, a private company, and uh, we train uh, lots of agencies here in New Zealand. Um, you know, we hold the national contract to train the Department of Conservation. We train Fish and Game New Zealand. We train uh, all sorts of uh, Ministry for the Environment. Um, lots of councils who do. Uh, 
uh, environmental enforcement or compliance. Um, mm. We train uh, uh, our uh, managed isolation facilities here in New Zealand that uh, manage all the COVID uh, isolation uh, facilities. Um, all sorts of people. Um, we have about 60, 60 organisations that we train. We um, we train Air New Zealand. We have the national contract to train Air New Zealand or their cabin crew on um, disruptive passenger management. Um, <laughs> yeah, really wide range. I mean, it started off very much on those uh, those sort of you know enforcement, as the name sort of suggests, compliance and enforcement. Mm-hmm. But now we train all sorts of people. We do a lot of training for librarians. And, and you kind of go, well, what are, what, are, what are librarians need to know compliance and enforcement skills? Well, they don't need to know compliance and enforcement skills, but they do know they do need people management skills. You know, sometimes there's some some young guys in the library making too much noise or That's doing right. whatever. they got to keep them quiet. That's the library's got to yeah, be so, quiet. <laughs> so the librarians have to have to go and approach these people and engage with them. So we teach them how to assess the situation and. And, and how to engage and communicate with people in a way that uh, using non-escalation techniques so that they are able to achieve the outcome they're looking for without the situation starting to escalate. So really, I, I, I call that, or I suggest what our company does now is we train people who deal with people. doesn't really matter why you're dealing with them. doesn't matter what the, the subject of conversation is. doesn't actually all we're doing is teaching you how to engage with people and how to how to do it in a way that uh, we we manage that interaction to keep everyone safe but achieve the outcome we're looking for. So it doesn't matter if you're a, a, a game warden, a ranger, an officer, mm. uh, a flight attendant on a plane, uh, it, it's it's dealing with people's skills. And um, and we established um, the same company in, in Australia so we, and we now hold uh, some pretty significant contracts training agencies over there. And so we've, it's sort of grown from me, uh, me being... The, the, the company being me to we now have sort of seven trainers and um all, all the trainers are former law enforcement officers um you know either fisheries or police and um yeah we're incredibly uh, fortunate that uh, a lot of agencies trust us to train their staff to keep to keep them safe so yeah which is which is fantastic very interesting yeah. and i you know maybe it's because i am a game warden but i have seen that game wardens have good communication skills and i'm not sure if it's because the type of work we do because we engage so many people on so many different levels it's not always a bad situation it can be a good situation it can be in the field it can be you know teaching an education course it seems like we build those communication skills and the other thing i think we build is that sixth sense that we know when something's wrong and it's not right and I've always told the younger guys, come and believe that, believe that, because there's something in what we do with communicating with people instills that there's a problem when there's a problem. And I always tell them, believe that, because there's a problem there. If you think there's a problem, and even if if there isn't, take it as a problem, and, and you can sort it out later. <laughs> so that's that's really interesting. Yeah, no, look, I think you're, you're, you're quite right, and, and, you know, incredibly humbling that, um, the New Zealand police, and, and, and look, rightly or wrongly, that the police will, and we have an incredibly professional police service here in New Zealand. Um, you know, they, they are, we have a, we are very uh, blessed as a country to have such a professional uh, police service here. They have about 10,000 officers, I think. Um, and they will always be seen uh, as the leading agency for law enforcement in, in New Zealand. Well, the New Zealand police came to our company and, uh, they bought our tactical communications package off us 
and uh, and we delivered the training to their instructors who then went out and rolled it out across the whole agency. So, uh, and, you know, I, that was an, a huge, um, I guess, kudos uh, for us. I mean, one thing the police can be a little bit, and, and as I said, it's probably a little bit different in the US in that, you know, you might have a police department with five officers in it, you know, in, in, a, in a small town. Well, we don't have, it would, it would be like, and I can only liken it to, it would be like the FBI coming to, um, to someone who has been a game warden for the last 20 years and, and has developed some, and the FBI buying your tactical communications package off you because they've actually recognised uh, how effective it is around that non-escalation training. And uh, that was a, a really significant um, yeah, um, milestone for us, I guess. And um, and I and I guess it really I, I I don't take any credit. I think it what it comes back to is the vision of fisheries in in identifying the need for that training and then um, sending someone who happened to be me off to go and look at all the different programs that are, uh, you know around various countries and then develop something that was suitable for New Zealand and um, bring it back and introduce it and. Uh, and then see all the other agencies go, wow, that's really good. We, we're going to start introducing that as well. So, yeah, really, um, really fortunate in, in, in that regard. And uh, as I said, a, a kudos to uh, to fisheries as being now. And I think most agencies or anyone involved in training and would recognise that fisheries were probably the uh, the lead agencies around that tactical communications training here in New Zealand. Yeah. Mm, very interesting. Well, we've been talking about an hour now, Brad, so figured we'd wrap it up and uh, maybe we'll do something in the future together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's awesome. Um, we went across the pond to Scotland and now we're in New Zealand and, you know, I'm, I'm holding up that pledge to, to go around the world. So, uh, and you're part of that and uh, just Todd Vandevert connecting us. I really appreciate him. Yes. He's a, he's a dynamic person for sure. I uh, really enjoyed his interview. <laughs> <laughs> He's got, hey, look! I tell you what's really, uh, really interesting. I put that post up on Facebook, and on, on, and I think it was I put it on one of the wardens' pages on Facebook of us out. And uh, I got a number of private messages on Facebook uh, from guys who wanted to trade patches with me. And uh, I, uh, I, I have a, I have a huge collection of patches from uh, you know my various travels around I the world. I don't do. actively put them, yeah, like I used to, but I've got you know hundreds of patches and badges, but. I also got an, a message from a uh, an officer in a uh, well, I won't say which province it was in, in Canada, uh, who has an active investigation going uh, involving uh, someone who was links to New Zealand, and he reached out to me and said, "Hey, uh, can you either help me or can you put me in touch with the right people in, in New Zealand to uh, to uh, give me some assistance uh, around some uh, some intelligence or some information on this person." And so, uh, and which, yeah, obviously, uh, um, more than happy to do that. So, uh, I think that's, uh, I guess, the, one of the great values of this community. And what what you're doing is you're actually connecting people all over the world who are uh, who who are really similar. I've always found natural resource, be them game wardens or fish cops or whatever, mm-hmm. we're all kind of the same. Um, you know, I, I've always said I've never met I've never met a game warden I, I didn't like or I didn't get on with. Um, yeah, I think, um, and, and being able to, to recognise that we are a really small sector of the law enforcement community, but but we're a really tight-knit one, and to try and uh, develop those relationships. And and uh, the world's getting smaller in terms of people coming here hunting or people going to Canada and the US, uh, you know, uh, and uh, so we will start to find that 
will probably be more international sort of investigations. And if you can pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, because you know someone in one of those other countries, it certainly makes uh, it a lot easier. So uh, um, I really hope that I get to stay involved in that community for many years to come. Great. So Brad Damonford, did I say that right again? I'm, I'm butchering it. Hey, I get called all sorts of names. Danaford, right? Anything you call me. Danaford. Danaford. It's Danish. Yeah. Danish originally. Uh, Brad Danaford, New Zealand. So thank you for spending some time with Warden's Watch Podcast, Brad. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners will too. Yeah. Hey, anytime anyone's coming to New Zealand, give us a call. Love to meet uh, anyone who comes down this way. Awesome. Thanks, Wayne. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders.